great. It is great uh, to see you all here this morning. I'm so glad that uh, I can be here with you. I miss being with you for Christmas Eve services, but I'm feeling much better and ready to roll today. Uh, tomorrow is 2024. That feels insane to me. Can you, believe, can you believe it already? I don't know what you're uh, looking forward to this year. I hope that there are big things you're looking forward to, good things you're looking forward to. One of the things, probably the thing I'm looking forward to most this year, uh, later on in the year, my wife and I will celebrate 25 years of marriage together. And yeah, looking forward to that. You can clap for her. Um, she's been in, she's had to endure a lot. And, uh, and I'll be honest with you, I just don't feel like I'm old enough to have been married that long. And you know what, I'm sure there are other people, you feel the same way, you know, about whatever it is in your life. And a lot of us, we say things like, life is short. Have you ever felt that way? I used to say that. I used to think that until I came across this. Life is short. False. It's the longest thing you do. <laughs> now, maybe, maybe life is short. Maybe it's not. But it is the longest thing that we're going to do. So why not have a great one? I want to have the best life that I possibly can have. And so do you. And I want you to let what I'm going to say next blow your socks off. The God of the universe, the one who thought up quantum physics and the power of laughter, the one who spoke it all into existence and holds it all together without breaking a sweat, he is personally invested in you having the best life possible. Think about the time that Jesus said this. He said, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And this is Jesus describing the whole point of why he showed up, the whole point of him moving towards our message. The whole point was this, is so that everybody would, know, would have life all the way to the full. And if you're someone, even if you're somebody, you're like, I, you know, I don't know what I, where I think about, what I think about Jesus. I don't know if I'm ready to follow Jesus. If you're not sure what to do with all of this religious stuff, would you let the full weight of how profound this is hit you? Like, would you just let yourself stand under the full weight of it? At the heart of the gospel is the realization that God in Christ would rather die then you and me not experience life all the way to the full. So why don't we? There's a saying in the business world and with leadership experts that goes something like this. Your system is perfectly designed to get the results you're currently getting. And I'm convinced that this is absolutely true. And I don't think it's just true for business, and I don't think it's just true for leadership endeavors. I think this is true, really, in every aspect of life. And if you're not with me yet, let me tweak it a little bit so you can see where I'm coming from. Your system or your approach to life is perfectly designed to get the results that you're currently getting. I think you think about anything in your life, you don't like what the results are, right? Just change the system. I mean, you can pick anything. If you do not like the way that the division of labor works and the domestic responsibilities in your household, did you know you could just change the system? You could change the approach. If you don't like the results that you're getting with money, did you know you could change your system? You could change your approach to it all. 
If you're not a huge fan of the results that you're getting from your dating life, you could change your approach. If you're not a huge fan of the results that you're getting from your health, you could change the system. You could change the approach. If you don't like the results you're getting right now from the way that you handle stress, maybe from the way that you're handling and navigating conflict in your life, did you know what you can do? You can change the system. You could change the approach that you've been taking to that. For those of you who did not have COVID and were here for the Christmas Eve services, you probably received an invitation to the message series that we're kicking off today. And if you got that invitation on that card, you might have read a question that we asked. And the question was this, would you want to hang out with a person? And 10 years from now, would you want to hang out with a person you're becoming? You see, 10 years from now, who you are, who I am, the approach that we're taking to life, we're going to be more of that 10 years from now. Your character and my character, the things that are shaping and forming you and the things that are shaping and forming me, all of that is just going to be that much more pronounced a decade from now. And I hope that you have more than a decade. I hope that we, I have more than a decade. I hope we all have many decades left. But at the end of that decade, of those decades, what is this resulting in? Are you a big fan? Are you a fan of who you're becoming? Now, let me share with you questions that I, I just ask myself. Sometimes I ask myself this question. Would I want my son to be the kind of man that I'm becoming? And regardless of how young or old you are, we are all becoming. Would I want my daughter to marry a man like the one that I'm becoming? And what we're talking about is thinking about our approach to life with the end in mind. And if any of you are a fan of C.S. Lewis, like I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis, you might be thinking of something that he wrote that I've been thinking about lately, and it's this. He said, progress means getting nearer to the place you want to be, and if you have taken a wrong turn, then, go, <coughs> then, going for, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road, and in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. It's this perspective right here is one of the reasons that I think that repentance should never be thought of as a bad word or as an ugly word. Repentance is a corollary of progress. And if you think about New Year's resolutions, it's possible maybe, just maybe, New Year's resolutions are nothing more than repentance just with different branding. Think about your life. Think about the results you're getting. Think about who you are. If you want to be more of that, keep the same direction. Keep the same system. Keep the same approach. But if you, there's, there's an area or there's something that you don't want to be more of that, what we got to do is we got to stop. We got to change direction. Because the system you and I choose, the approach we take is perfectly designed to get the results we're currently getting. Now that's why over the next few days, you're probably gonna see me at the rack. I need a new system. <laughs> but the real question is, will you see me there over the next few months? Now, this message series that we're, that we're kicking off today, it's not, a, it's not a New Year's resolution series. It's not the best way to think about it. And it's not 
a repentance series. The series that we're kicking off today, it's really a series about life, about our approach to it, about who we're becoming. Today I'm feeling a bit ambitious. I normally ask you if you'll find one passage and turn to it. Today I'm going to ask you to do something different. I'm going to ask you to find two passages. I want you to turn to these two passages. Um, Matthew and 1 Corinthians, they are both in the New Testament. That's the second half of the Bible. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians is the seventh. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. How's your turn in there, if you're using, holding a Bible in your hand like a book, like I am, or if you're using your phone, either one of those are fine. Both are totally uh, acceptable. And what we're going to start with is Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to pick up in verse 24. And what we're going to read, it's the, it's the conclusion of what is probably Jesus' most famous sermon ever. And it's the, it's the ending of a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And I'd, I'd love for you to read it sometime. It covers all of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And we're just going to pick up at the end. Um, verse 24, it says this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them in the practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain came down, and the streams rose, and the winds, they blew against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd, they were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had what? Authority. And he wasn't like their teachers of the law. He wasn't like any of the religious leaders they had ever seen before in their life. I want to make a few observations from what we just read. The first one is, the wise man and the foolish man shared the same good intentions, didn't they? And in this made-up story, this fictional story called a parable that, that, Jesus, that Jesus told, these two guys, they both went about building a house which represents the kind of life that they're living, their, their approach to life. They had, they had the same intentions, and they were good intentions. Second observation, the wise man and the foolish man were identical and behavior. They went about doing the very exact same thing. And if we knew them, like if we were there, if we could meet those guys, right, if we could step into that story, it'd be hard for us to tell them apart. Maybe we wouldn't be able to tell them apart. It's very likely if we knew them that we would respect both of them, that we would admire both of them. Some of you might even say about the foolish man, you might even say to your kids, be like that guy. Look at how hard he's working. The wise man and the foolish man, they were equally exposed to a storm, but not equally vulnerable to it. Real quick, I, wanna, I just want to say this. Following Jesus is not some way to bypass suffering and, and hardship in life. 
This life to the full that Jesus wants us to have, it is not a fantasy life. Don't let anyone, I mean, don't tolerate for a second anyone who would want to trick you or deceive you or manipulate you into believing that somehow following Jesus is supposed to result in being immune to big hurts in life. That is not what the gospel is about. But looking at these two guys, they were incredibly similar in how they started out, but why were they so different in the way they ended up? It's here we see the genius of Jesus is that everything rises and falls on our foundation. Everything rises and falls on our foundation for life. And sometimes in life, our choices are binary, aren't they? You see, there's no middle ground between these two things. Either the foundation for your approach to life is rock solid, or it's not rock solid. There is nothing in between being rock solid and not being rock solid. There is no middle ground in between being wise and not being wise. There's only two options here. And I know the one that we all want to be. We all want to be, we all want to be wise, don't we? And you're here. It is a holiday weekend. It is New Year's Eve. It's Sunday, it's Sunday morning. The roads are slippery, and you are here. So I know you guys are the people. You take it seriously. You're like, I want to know more about Jesus. I want to, I want to build my life on, on what he had to say. But it's here where we're about to see another angle into, another perspective into the genius of Jesus. Because Jesus understood that people who are religiously oriented in life are vulnerable to wrongly estimating themselves, to even overestimating themselves. We're going to jump back a few verses, and we're going to go to what Jesus said right before this. We're going to look at verse 21. It is, I think, shockingly disruptive. Buckle up. Jesus said this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but, the only, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, at the end, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I want to make a few observations about this one. The people who Jesus was talking about, they had right beliefs. Jesus isn't telling a story. He's not telling a parable. He's talking about real life stuff. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. And the people that he was talking about, they had right beliefs. They prophesied. They shared. They declared religious truth, and they did it in the name of Jesus. And not only did they have right beliefs, they had right behaviors. I don't totally understand how they were able to do this, but Jesus said it, so I'm just going to trust him on it, that they, they performed miracles, they drove out demons, they did all kinds of stuff. And these people, they probably would have said, we've got the receipts. Look at the good stuff that we do. They had things in their life that they pointed to that sort of reinforced and supported their sense of self-confidence. But these people were not known by Jesus. And that's the whole point, isn't it? The whole point of it all is to know him and to be known by him. When Jesus said these words, do you think it went off like a bomb? I think it did. 
And after dropping this truth bomb on the crowd, it was only after that that Jesus told the parable of the wise man who built his life on the rock and the foolish man who didn't. And the whole point was to say, this is what matters. This is what's most important, is to build your life, your whole approach to life on knowing me, on knowing what I'm like, on knowing what my word says, on trusting and following me. I mean, focusing, I mean, it is just worthless to focus on anything else. It is an utter waste of time to start with anything else other than knowing and being known by Jesus. Now, this is why religious people, I mean, really religious people, religious leaders, religious teachers, they had a hard time with Jesus because his approach and the things he talked about, it didn't feel super religious. I mean, this was utterly and exquisitely relational. And the question is, so what should that relationship be like? What should it look like? What should it hold on to that? We're going to come back to that in a minute. Before we do, I want to go to the other passage that I asked you to, to turn to, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 uh, was written by a guy named the Apostle Paul, and this comes from a letter that he wrote uh, to a congregation, to a bunch of Jesus followers in the city of Corinth. And it was a different time and a different place. There are probably people who aren't a lot much different from us. And yet this group of Jesus followers, this congregation, this church, they were on the struggle bus. See, they looked far more like their culture and cultural influences than they looked like Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul wrote this to them, and I want us to notice how what he had to, to write and share with them is similar to the things that Jesus said. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, it says this, No one can lay a foundation, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. The, the day is it's, it's the end. It's, it's judgment. And, and fire is often used as a way to symbolize or represent God's judgment or God's evaluation of our lives. It says uh, fire will uh, test the quality of each person's work. Verse 14 if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So I think the Apostle Paul here is just as shockingly disruptive as Jesus was. And like Jesus, he uses some imagery-rich language. The, the gold and silver and the costly stones, that represents... All this stuff in our life that, that looks like Jesus, that represents Jesus, the wood, the hay, the straw, that stuff, it represents all the things in our life that, that don't look like Jesus, the areas where we're, we're nothing like him. And what the Apostle Paul is saying, here it is, at the end of it all, there will be people who know Jesus, and Jesus knows them but they're not going to have anything to show for their life. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that there's going to be people, maybe even some of us, who at the end of it all, what they're going to have is regret and the realization that their approach to life was all wrong. And that's a truth that's behind what's going to be 
a recurring anthem in this series. Our series thesis is this. Maturity is possible, but it's not inevitable. Maturity is possible, but it's not inevitable. All right, you're going to have to be on your best behavior here. You can't say anybody's name out loud. You can't point. Are you ready? Do you know anybody who's getting older, but they're not getting better? Like, does that happen? And I'm not just talking about out there general in life. I'm talking about church people. I'm talking about people who follow Jesus. I'm talking about things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. People are getting older, but aren't getting more like that. In fact, it's possible to be getting older and look less like those things. Time and, and maturity, they should go together. Time and maturity can go together, but they're not automatic, are they? See, this right here, I think this should be somewhat sobering and inspiring. Sobering in the sense that it sobers me and my approach could be wrong. But maturity and life to the full that Jesus intends for you to have and for me to have, it is possible and it comes as we know him and our approach to life is built on him. And with that in view and the things that we've read from Jesus and the things that we've read from the Apostle Paul, I want to I talk about an approach to the Christian life and I want us to think about it carefully and critically because the approach that I'm going to bring up, it may not be everything that we thought it was. And what I want to talk about is right beliefs and right behavior. Right belief and right behavior. Now, these two things, these are great. We need these things. These are incredibly important. I think right beliefs are incredibly important. I don't want to believe a lie. Do you want to believe a lie? I don't want to believe lies. I want to be what, the things that I believe, I want them to be true. I only want to trust in what's true. And I want the content of my life, the choices that I make, I want my lifestyle to be aligned with the truth. These two things I want. I want them for me. I want them for you. I want them for my kids. All right? Now, depending on your background, your denominational background, your church culture background, the, kind of the way that, that you grew up, the way that, that you were shaped, the way you approached all of this, you might feel like one of these things got more energy than the other. And there are some churches that they focus heavily on doctrine and Bible study, and those are good things. And there are churches that focus heavily on, on, on right beliefs. There are churches that focus on the practical, pragmatic stuff, like how the words of Jesus, how they'll make your, how you handle money better, your marriage better, a lot of stuff you do in life better. And those are good things. And churches that tend to emphasize this, sometimes get a little judgy of churches that emphasize this. And churches that emphasize this sometimes get a little judgy of churches that emphasize this. You guys ever seen that? You guys know what I'm talking about? All right. But there's another approach. And that approach is let's bring these two things together. And that this is what it's about, how when right beliefs and, and right behaviors, when they overlap, this right here in the overlap, that's where discipleship happens. And the thinking is, that as we acquire right beliefs, and as our behaviors align with those right beliefs, that's maturity. And that's how maturity happens. And that's how we experience life to the full that Jesus intended. And this approach right here, is incredibly common and very popular in American evangelical churches. And let me tell you what this system, what this approach results in. It results in people who are brilliant, orthodox, 
respectable, and successful. Whether we're talking about churches, whether we're talking about individuals, this approach right here will result in being brilliant, orthodox, respectable, and successful. And for much of my life, I thought this was it. For much of my life, I thought this was the approach. But I got to a place, I just wasn't convinced anymore. The more I tried to take Jesus seriously, I just wasn't convinced that this is the system, this is the approach that he intended to give us. And I was hit with some really nagging questions. Questions I couldn't put down. Like, why is it that being all about this is so great at producing conformity instead of transformation? Why is it true that you could have right beliefs and right behavior and not look anything like Jesus? And I'm not saying that these things are bad. I, I want right beliefs. I want right behaviors. I think these things are great. What I'm saying is as a system, as the approach to life, I don't think this is how we get to life to the fullest. I don't, I don't think this is how we experience maturity. I don't think Jesus gave his life so that this would be our approach to life. And what I want to do is I want to talk super honest. Can I like be really honest with you guys? Do you guys have people in your life? Do you have at least one person in your life who you can talk to from your gut, like from the most vulnerable part of who you are, and you can share with them, and all they want to do is understand you. They don't want to twist what you have to say. They would never take what you say and misrepresent. They just want to know you and understand. Do you have somebody like that in your life? That's what I want our relationship to be. That's what I want my relationship with you to be. And so what I'm going to share with you next, it comes from that deep down vulnerable, my shields are down kind of place. I don't think that time and church attendance equals maturity. I don't think time plus Bible study equals maturity. I don't think time plus trying harder equals maturity. And me being super vulnerable with you, I don't think time plus church attendance plus Bible study plus trying harder equals maturity. I started out young in pastoral ministry, probably too young. I've had the privilege of serving as a pastor in some way for over 25 years now. I feel like I've had a front row seat to seeing the best version of this, and I just don't think it's what leads to the kind of life that Jesus was talking about. And you got to hear me. I'm not against these things. Like, I think church attendance is incredibly important. I'm a big fan of that this room is not empty right now. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad we're here together. I think it's important. I really think it's important. I'm not against Bible study. I love it. I don't know how we could know Jesus apart from this. I think this is important too. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. I'm not opposed to any of these things. I don't think any of these things should be removed from the Christian life. What I'm saying is, I don't think life with Jesus can be reduced to this. On his last night of freedom, 
Jesus just poured out his heart. I mean, he poured out deep, rich truth. He, he poured out his soul to his disciples, to his followers who were there with him. And there was a point where he said, guys, I just want you to pray with me. And one of the guys who was there in that group is probably the guy who was, cl- the guy who was closest to Jesus, maybe his best friend. His name was John. And John wrote down these things that Jesus said. He wrote down things that he heard Jesus pray that night. And he is not, I mean, he, it is not going to be long till he is nailed to the cross. He might be minutes from being arrested. When Jesus prays this, I'm going to put it on the screen. And I just want you to imagine, I want you to imagine being in the garden. I want to let, you, let yourself imagine, maybe you can hear the shuffle of the feet of the men who are armored up coming to get them. Maybe you can hear that echoing off in the distance. And you hear Jesus pray these words. Now this is eternal life. Now this, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is not something that begins after we're dead. Eternal life is our life with Jesus. It is the life of thriving. It is life to the full that he intended for us. to. It starts as soon as we trust in him. And Jesus said, this is why I came. This is what it's all about. This is it. Heavenly Father, that they know you and they know me. This is it. Like I said before, it is utterly and it is exquisitely relational. And so the question is, what kind of relationship should we have with Jesus? If it's utterly and exquisitely relational, what should that be like? To answer that, it's going to take a couple of minutes, and we're going to have to walk down a road that might feel like a winding road. Jesus' daddy had a job. What was his daddy's job? He was a what? He was a carpenter. Now, to what extent Jesus was involved in the family business, I don't really know, but Jesus had a different career. What was Jesus' career? He was a rabbi. And it was hard to become a rabbi. Very few people could do it. And it was it, because it was so, such a difficult journey to become a rabbi, it was incredibly prestigious. And for us to understand that, I need to, need to share with you a little bit about the Jewish educational system. Um, their education system started for kids same age as ours does, when kids were five years old. They didn't call it kindergarten. They called it Beit Sefer. It means house of the book. And you would go to Beit Sefer when you were five years old, and it would last probably till you were about 12 or 13. And by the end of it, do you know what you were able to do? You were able to say from memory the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This part right here, memorize. Some of you can't remember what you had for dinner last night. These preteens had this memorized. Now, most kids, when they were done with Bates Affair, they were done. They went back home. They worked on the family business. They did whatever it is they were going to do with their life. But the best of the best students, the best of the best students, they were, they were invited to go to the next level of school, which was called Bait Midrash. And Beit Midrash lasted about five years, and so it end when they were 17, 18 years old. And at the end of Beit Midrash, you know what they could do? They could recite from memory 
the entire Old Testament. This. From memory. Now, most kids were not smart enough to even make it to that school. And most kids, when they graduated, they were done. Education is over. You're going to go do what you're going to do in life. You're going to get married. You're going to do the family business. You're going to do whatever. But if you were the best of the best of the best, you could ask to become the apprentice of a rabbi. And just being able to quote all of that from memory was not good enough. You would, you would go through a rigorous interview process with that rabbi. He'd ask you all kinds of questions. And if you passed, do you know what that rabbi would say? He would say, come, follow me. Come, follow me. Who does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus. Because Jesus was a rabbi. That is the way that he called all the people who he wanted to be, his disciples, come and follow me. You can see why they would leave their family business behind. What an incredible honor that was. It's because the kind of relationship that Jesus intended, it was follow me as your rabbi. There's a book that's coming out. Uh, it's kind of weird for me to recommend this, but there's a, this book right here. It's called Practicing the Way. It's coming out January 16th. Now, um, Pastor Sfeo was able to get a release copy uh, of this book for us uh, some months ago. We've been studying it and reading it. and I love this book. And for those of you who know me pretty well, you know that there is, there's only like one book that I ever say I think every Christian should read. It's a book called Search for Significance. I now have two books that I think every Christian should read. Search for Significance by Robert S. McGee and this book right here. It's going to be available in our Christos bookstore when it comes out in a couple of weeks. I'd love for every person in our, in our church to get this book and read it because I think the author does such a marvelous job of just making it clear what it means, what this life is supposed to look like as we follow Jesus. The guy who's the author of this book, his name is John Mark Comer. I am in his debt, and I also kind of hate him a little bit. Like, you ever in a conversation, you're trying to say something, and somebody else, like, you're just trying to say it, and somebody else comes along, and like, with no effort whatsoever, they say it more clearly and better than you could. This guy. This is why I love this book. And I want to share with you something out of the book. If you get the book, this is what you're going to read. He talks about what the relationship is like between someone who follows their rabbi and their rabbi. He says, now let's say, let's say you're one of the lucky few who became an apprentice to a rabbi. From that day on, your entire life was organized around three driving goals. Number one, to be with your rabbi. Number two, to become like your rabbi. Number three, to do as your rabbi did. This is what it meant to be a disciple. This is what it still means to be a disciple. To be with Jesus. To become like Jesus. And then to do as Jesus did. That is the life. That is life to the full that he intended for you and for me. So the question is, what kind of relationship should we have with Jesus? It's this right here. He is the rabbi. He is the master. We are his apprentices. Be with Jesus. 
become like Jesus and do as he did. The reason that our church exists, it's never changed. The way we might describe it changes, but the, the, the essence of it has really never changed. And the whole point of why we exist is summed up in our mission statement. We exist to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. He is our leader. He is the master. He is our rabbi. We apprentice under. We follow him. We are his disciples. And the way that we've talked about that, it's, we've used three words as a, as a lens to help us see what that means. Those three words are authority, identity, and activity. What I want to do is I want to take the clarity. I want to take the clarity of, of being with, becoming like, and doing as Jesus did and fold that in to how we define authority, identity, and activity. This is what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus, to, to be his apprentice. What we're talking about is authority. I find joy in being with Jesus, submitting to him, and following his way. When we think about identity, what we're talking about is I find joy in defining myself by what Jesus did. I want to become more like him. We talk about activity. I find joy in doing as Jesus did and loving others the way that he loved me. Over the next few weeks, this is what we're going to be doing. We are going to be exploring and practicing the way of Jesus together. There is an old expression. There's an old Jewish expression that really cuts it to the heart of what the relationship between an apprentice and a rabbi is supposed to be. And that expression is covered in the dust of my rabbi. Have you guys ever heard that expression before? Covered in the dust of my rabbi. It probably came from a rabbi named Yosef ben Yozer, who lived two centuries before Jesus. And he said this, he said, let thy house be a meeting house for the wise and powder thyself in the dust of their feet and drink their words with thirstiness. And over the years, that evolved into become covered in the dust of your rabbi. And the idea is, as we follow him so closely, we are so near to him, we're so with him, that the dust that he kicks up, it cakes and covers us. And that seeing us and being around us is obvious that we have been with Jesus. Every single one of us, regardless of how young or how old we are, we are becoming more of something. We're becoming more like something. We're becoming more like someone. And the approach that you have to life, the approach that I have to life, it's either resulting in us looking more like Jesus or us looking more like something else. I want to look more like him. I want my life to look like what it would be like if Jesus was looking, living my life. That's what it means to be an apprentice of the rabbi. Be with him. Become like him. And do as he did. So what do you say? Can we walk together and become covered in the dust of our rabbi? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness 
We thank you for your grace. I don't even, I don't even know how to wrap my mind around this fully, but life to the full is knowing you. It's knowing Jesus. It's being known by you. God, I, I thank you that that is what you desire. You made us for a relationship with you. May we, may we dig into that. May we understand that. May we be people who are all about that, who drank that up with thirstiness. And over these next few weeks and over the course of our life, it is our desire that we are more and more like Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.